We have a new show at Turpentine that's been in the works for a long time, Company Breakdowns. We dive into S1s and Series B and Beyond companies, interviewing founders and investors to break down the companies. First episode is on Rubrik, which IPO'd this week. Upcoming episodes cover Reddit, Databricks, and more. Subscribe at the link in the description or search for Company Breakdowns on YouTube or in the podcast platform of your choice. Finance is looking at numbers on a page. And if you really think about what those numbers are, everything that happens in the company, all the hiring, all the software you buy, all the cash you collect from customers, all the cash you send out to your vendors, all of that shows up in the numbers. And the reason I I say that is because the best finance teams have this just insatiable intellectual curiosity to keep moving upstream in the business. So let's use a software company as an example that has a recurring revenue model. Well, you can just wait and look at the revenue on the P&L, but you and I know that there's a whole subscription process that goes into that, and there's bookings, and there's customers, and there's expansions and churn, and all the things that happen. And if you're willing to really dive in upstream, then you become a finance team that's not reporting the news, you're making the news. Is this thing on? Yesterday's price is not today's price. Couldn't have said it better myself, Fat Joe. Welcome to Run the Numbers, where I interview world-class CFOs, operators, and the investors who fund them on how to get the most out of your company's performance. This podcast is a playbook of sorts for ambitious people in the world of finance, strategy, and ops. Today, my guest is Chad Gold, the current CFO at G2 and former CFO at SalesLoft. Chad has raised money from some of the best investors in the business, including Vista, Premiera, Accel, IVP, and Insight. And he's built world-class finance teams for hypergrowth. On this episode, me and Chad cover the concept of building lines, not dots with investors, how to decide how much time to dedicate to those investor meetings versus actually running the business, how majority recaps work and the equity implications for execs and employees, get that money, how finance teams can make the news in a good way. And we go way back to some early lessons he learned on the finance team at Home Depot when he was just starting his career. Not only does Chad have perhaps the coolest name for a CFO, he's extremely thoughtful about how FP&A and finance can plug into the business to be drivers, not passengers. He's also one of the people who comes to my mind when I think about building a durable and successful career as a venture-backed chief financial officer. All this and much, much more after a short word from our sponsors. Well, you know what I always say, maintaining compliance is never complete, which is why most security and IT teams feel like they're always in audit purgatory. (laughs) I'm there right now. But there is a solution, and it's easier than you think. Escape the infinite loop by using ThoroughPass's compliance and audit solution. ThoroughPass is the only solution using AI-infused technology and in-house auditors to take your team from start to stamp without leaving the platform. As a winner of multiple G2 awards, including top awards for usability and service, your team is in good hands with ThoroughPass. From onboarding with dedicated experts to audits from in-house auditors who know every aspect of your framework needs, you can have complete confidence in your ThoroughPass compliance journey. ThoroughPass is the only solution to offer audits for your most needed security frameworks. I'm talking HIPAA to HITRUST and SOC2 to ISO 27001. If you need PCI, DSS, pen tests, or any other major compliance framework, ThoroughPass can hook you up. 
With ThoroughPass, you never need to worry again. Relax, we fix audits. Find more at ThoroughPass.com. That's T-H-O-R-O-P-A-S-S.com. Tell them your boy CJ sent you. They'll hook you up. Boom. All right, welcome back to Run the Numbers. I'm here with Chad Gold. And Chad, I have to say, I told two of my friends that I was interviewing you, and they both said, that is the most fitting name for a CFO. It's kind of like the Usain Bolt of track. It's like you were just made for this business. Chad Gold, it just feels like finance, gravitas, and money when I say it. Yeah, I mean, I will say you're not the first person that said that I do have a a good last name for the job that I do. (laughs) Well, you've built quite the career. And part of that career has been through building durable relationships with some stellar growth and late stage investors. And I had done some research on how you went about building those relationships. And you had this quote that struck me. You said, you want to build lines, not dots. Can you take me through what that means? Yeah. You know, the thing is, is that when you're building a venture back company and you raise capital, the capital raise itself is very episodic. You, know, you raise it and then you move on. And what investors want and what I believe in is you establish a relationship and you really do that before you need anything. You're just meeting them and letting them get to know you as the finance leader and then telling the story of the company and giving them snippets of the performance of the business. And so then we meet again, again, not when we need something, but again, now it becomes a line. Now I'm saying, hey, you remember six months ago, I said we were going to hit X. We just achieved that. And so you're starting to establish this track record with investors and building the relationship before you ever raise money. And then the fundraise itself is easy because then all you do is you talk to all the investors you've built a relationship with, and they're excited to spend time with you because you didn't come to them when you needed something. You built a relationship before. And I've just found that to be really effective, really with all the investors. In fact, part of what brought me to G2, incredible investors, I think 80% of them I had met at some point in my career through this very process of building lines, not dots. That speaks a lot to, I think, just the Silicon Valley ecosystem and how you want to play long-term games with long-term people. I mean, I saw you've raised money from the likes of Vista Equity, Premiera, Accel, IVP, Insight. And I imagine all of those fundraisers came about through kind of doing updates with them, not necessarily like this event where you said, hey, here I am, my name's Chad, I'm with this company we're raising, this is our story. It's like, no, we already know about you. And it's like the appropriate timing. And it's just an update on the next chapter of the story. That's exactly right. You literally hit the nail on the head. And then I think that was especially important in the early days at SalesLoft because you know, SalesLoft, we built the company in Atlanta. And back in 2018, 2019, Atlanta wasn't as well known for venture-backed growth like it is now. And so we had to tell the story. I think the the main difference now that I'm at G2 is most investors know who G2 is because they research on G2 already. So there's a little bit of a benefit there, but it is, to your point, it is about this idea that you really have kept them up to speed on the business. And there's an incredible amount of trust and partnership that goes into raising capital. And as the CFO, you know, you're the steward of your employees' lives, of your investors' investments and I think you need to establish that trust before you ever need the money, because then the reality is that then they they have that confidence with you at the wheel when the time comes that you do need it. Yeah, you're kind of building up points in this trust bank with them over time. You're building up a balance, essentially. You got it. That's exactly right. I do have to ask, though, because this is something that I can struggle with from time to time, and especially if it's a big name investor, it's kind of almost a shiny object. 
talking to investors all the time as a CFO or a CEO, that can be a huge distraction, right? Because you still have to run the business. What advice do you have for CEOs and CFOs who do receive a ton of you know, regular inbound or, or interest for these intro calls? Yeah, it's a great point. And to be clear, I mean, I, I don't do that many of them you know, on mm. a period. But what I do is I think at this stage of my career, I'm lucky because I know most of them. And so the people that are reaching out are friends or acquaintances from prior life. But you know, my best advice is you have to be intentional at who you spend time with. And what I mean by that is when you raise capital, it's not just about the money, it's about the partnership and who you're bringing into the company. And so there are appropriate investors for the stage company you're in. There are appropriate investors for like the category that you're in. So kind of knowing who the right people are to meet with. And another point is, is like the example I'd give you is if you're a later stage company, you're probably going to spend time with investors that may want to invest in a public company and stay with them through the IPO. And so that intentionality kind of allows you to be selective in how you do it. And I get lucky at G2, I guess, you know, the biggest thing that's different from SalesLoft is most of the investors I meet with are not only interested in learning about the company from an investing point of view, but they're actually customers because they subscribe to our data sets too. So it's like a bit of a- Ooh, that's a hack. Yeah, it's a, it's a bit of an opportunity not to, you know, to share with them about our data solutions because a lot of them didn't realize, they say, well, you guys have so much data. How do we get access to it to even be more proactive in investing? And we've built products around that to help investors as well. That's neat. So they're coming to you because you have this deep data moat and then it can, if it needs to, turn into a different conversation. Correct. That's right. So it sounds like, Chad, you do have a lens though that you filter these inquiries through. It's probably the first one is, do I, do I know this person or not? Have I worked with them before? But after that, I think you hit on, is this the right stage for me? So like, even if it's a big name, maybe it's like A16Z, but you know, I'm a late stage company, that would be great. But maybe three years ago, is that kind of what goes through your head? That's exactly right. You know, everybody's busy, right? I mean, investors are very busy too, and, and you don't want to waste their time. And they're pretty good. I mean, I would say for the most part, investors kind of know and don't reach out to companies where there's a mismatch. And honestly, you know, back to the lines, not dots comment, the investors I've come to really enjoy working with the most are the ones that believe in that too. And so they're reaching out just to check in. Like I had a lot of investors that, you know, reached out when I moved to G2. And that means a lot to me because those are people that I would prioritize and spend time with because we've invested in that personal connection as well. So to stick with the investment topic, you did a majority recap with Vista. So you can say what you want about the transaction, but I'm more just interested in the structure of how a majority recap even goes down. Would you mind just explaining to the audience just what a majority recap is? Sure. I think you know, most people are familiar with a fundraise, which is where you're raising capital and investors are taking a minority interest in the company. You tend to have a number of investors with a majority recap. You have a primary investor, in this case for us, it was Vista Equity Partners, who comes in and takes over a majority of the cap table. And in doing that, there are a couple of things that happen. And part of why we chose that route at SalesLoft is, number one, it's an opportunity to generate returns for your investors. So a lot of our investors were able to either you know, take out a significant stake or and roll as well. But you know, we're able to get liquidity as part of their investment in SalesLoft. And so that was a good outcome for them. And I think one of the biggest differences in a majority recap as well is it gives you an opportunity to have your employees participate because employees who have options have an opportunity to get some liquidity from that majority recap. And so it's a nice way to 
get some returns for everybody and situate the company for yet further growth because now you've got an incredible partner in Avista or somebody like that to then take the company to the next level. Because we had explored both routes at that time. We had looked at raising another minority round and looking towards an IPO. And the way the deal came about with Vista, it just made more sense for us to do that and really reward our employees, our investors, and get a strategic partner that we knew would then take us to the next stage. That makes a ton of sense. And there are probably a lot of employees listening to this right now. So like, hey, if a majority recap happens to my company, what occurs? Like, how does that impact me? Do employees get cashed out fully or partially? What, what usually goes down? To give you the cop-out answer, I mean, it depends. Every yeah. transaction can be different. Generally speaking, employees will cash out some of their equity in the company if they have equity. So again, this is assuming they've got equity or stock options or whatever in the company, they'll cash out some of it and then they will what's called roll some of it into the go-forward business. And I think the reason it's structured that way is you know, just like with any acquisition, you don't want to just have everybody take all their chips off the table because then they leave. And I think just like the way Vista thought about the deal was not only are we investing in sales off, but we're investing in all these incredible employees behind the company to then grow it. Got it. And if I'm a CFO listening to this, should I think in my head, oh, majority recap, but I'm just making up numbers here. I have 1% of the company. I get to cash out my 1% and I get a new 1%. Like, do I get two bites of the apple here? Is that not what happens in recaps? Again, it depends. But what I would say <laughs> is generally... If you had 1% of the company, at most, you would take out half of it. Got it. Okay. And then the other half would roll. And you, you know, depending upon who the partner is, you may get more, you may not. And that's done because in this case, if you think about the investors that generally do majority recaps, they want the management team to stay and to keep growing the company. And so they give somebody a bite at the apple, but then allow them to then roll that stake. And you know, part of it too is... Management teams generally believe that they can continue to generate economic value. And so you want to ride the upside. And it's a nice way that role, that portion that you don't cash out, keeps your alignment with investors there sure. post-transaction as well. And speaking of that alignment, how do you balance the needs of old investors on the cap table with new? Because you said, I guess it'd be Vista in this scenario, it could be anyone, but now they have majority control. Some of your old investors probably roll, but now the cap table changes, so they may not have as much sway anymore. Correct. Yeah. I mean, that's part of the, the discussion that happens in a boardroom when you're making that decision. Generally speaking, and again, I'm generalizing, a venture-backed company has got a lot of the financial you know, venture investors around the table. When you do a majority recap, most of those board seats go away and go to the partner that you're working with. So somebody like Vista or Toma Bravo or Primera would take over the board and then it depends on the structure. Sometimes those minority investors that rolled will have a board seat. But when you make a decision to go majority recap, at the end of the day, whoever your partner is, is going to be able to be the final say in whatever you do. That makes a lot of sense. And I mean, like, I think about this in public markets too. And we had talked with Lee Kirkpatrick, who took Twilio Public back in the day. And I was asking him, how do you balance like people who will hold on to your stock versus sell it? And what we got into is it's actually good to have sellers because then you have no liquidity. And mm -hmm. I think it applies to private markets too, where people may say, well, oh, this investor's selling out. That's a bad signal. It's like, no, I mean, they helped you out maybe for five, six, seven, eight years, and they need to show returns. And also, maybe exactly. you want someone else who can apply advice that's applicable to the life cycle you're now in. Yeah. I mean, like when we made the decision to partner with Vista, in addition to just being able to give really strong returns to our investors and to our employees, 
at the stage we were at, Vista brought a lot of great advice and knowledge around, you know, scaling an enterprise software company at the scale that we were at. And so back to my comment early on, you pick your partner, not just for the financial outcome, but who the partner is going to be as well. And I had the opportunity to work with the Vista team for two years post-transaction and it did prove out. I mean, they've got a number of great things that we were able to implement at SalesLoft that I think were very beneficial for the business long-term. I worked with a CMO who worked at a company that was taken private by Vista. And he was like amazed by the playbooks that they they mm-hmm. threw at him. He said he felt like he got an MBA after the acquisition. Yeah, you know what it is? It's this combination of you get a management team who understands the space and knows the company really well. And you marry that up with these playbooks that have been institutionalized over hundreds of software investments. You know, and I think everybody's heard some of the investors like Robert Smith at Vista talk about. They've never lost money on an investment. There's a reason those playbooks are so good. And I think what I loved about this working with Vista too was it's a pull model. When you want help or you see something that you want to change in the company, you're like, I think we could do this better. You pull on those resources versus them just dropping a big gigantic book on your desk and saying, do all these things. And I appreciated that approach because it allowed us to really prioritize, I'd say the areas that were most important for us as we were going. My mother-in-law tells me she's never lost money on an investment. She's a day trader, though. I don't know how true it is. (laughs) Hey, thanks for listening. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsors. As a SaaS CFO, I know firsthand how difficult it is to report on SaaS metrics. We've all seen a deal close at the end of the month, but the customer's contract doesn't actually start until the middle of the next month, creating the classic discrepancy between bookings or committed ARR and actual ARR, the real stuff. That's why I'm so pumped to be partnering with Maxio, a company trusted by thousands of SaaS companies to understand these reporting nuances. They basically built and automated the SaaS dashboard I tried to manually cobble together for three years. In 2022, SaaS Optics and Chargeify combined to become Maxio, the only billing and financial operations platform that was purpose-built for B2B SaaS. They're helping SaaS finance teams automate billing and RevRec, manage collections and payments, and put together investor-grade reporting packages. Visit Maxio.com slash run the numbers to learn how Maxio can help you supercharge financial operations in 2024. Request a demo using the run the numbers link and receive a 10% discount on your first year with Maxio. That's Maxio.com forward slash run the numbers. You touched on playbooks. Do you think that the higher up a CFO goes, you're being hired not just for your personality and characteristics, but the playbooks that you've inherited over the years? Sure. I think, look, at this stage, I'm going to date myself, but I've been working in finance for over 20 years. The last 10 in software companies, over 10 now, gosh. You're getting hired just as much for your experience and what you've seen as you are just for your background and, and all that. And I think that that's, I would say, for pretty much every executive that's where you go. And the thing is, is that in every function, a C-suite leader, you know, we all have domain expertise. We came up from somewhere, right? So like, as an example, the CFO generally comes up, you're either a controller, you're a CPA. I'm not that. You've either done financial planning and analysis, kind of like operational finance, or you're maybe you've done, you've been a banker, done corporate development. I was lucky enough to do some M&A, but then spend bulk of my career in operational finance and FP&A financial planning and analysis, Same, which I think for me personally has made me, I'd say a better CFO 
And I don't say that to say that controllers can't be because I know plenty of them that are awesome CFOs. But what it does for me is it says, look, I know the FP&A side really well. And I know what I want that to look like. And I've been very lucky to work with incredible FP&A leaders on my teams. And I know I need a really, really good controller because I'm not a CPA. And I'd say with every function in the company, whether it's the chief marketing officer, chief revenue officer, they've all got domain expertise. Most people haven't done everything. And if you have, you haven't done a lot of everything. And so, you you know, the best executives, I think, you know, your blind spots and you're vulnerable enough to say, I I need to invest in this area because it's not my expertise. And then I'm going to pave the way and support that person to be successful. When I first became CFO, I knew my blind spot was not having a CPA, not being a CPA and, and not really having done the core accounting operations of like how money enters and leaves the building. So like day one, I was like, I need a kick-ass controller. I need to form a rolling 13-week cash forecast. And I don't know if I over-admitted my weaknesses, but like I was very intentional about saying like, I know this is a blind spot, but I'm not going to let it be. The best leaders can do that and are intellectually honest enough to say that and to say, I'm here to support you. You know, one of the biggest things I do in my one-on-ones with my direct reports is I I end every one-on-one by saying, what can I do for you? Tell me what you need. Hmm. You know, because my job is to pave the way for them to be successful. That's a really good lead into this next one, because I wanted to talk about the qualities of building great finance teams. And you had this awesome quote. I'm making it a bumper sticker. Yours is in the mail. So it's finance is just an expression of everything that happens in the business. Can you break that one down for us? Sure. You know, at the end of the day, if you think about it, right, finance is looking at numbers on a page. And if you really think about what those numbers are, everything that happens in the company, all the hiring, all the software you buy, all the cash you collect from customers, all the cash you send out to your vendors, all of that shows up in the numbers. And the reason I I say that is because the best finance teams have this just insatiable intellectual curiosity to keep moving upstream in the business. So let's use a software company as an example that has a recurring revenue model. Well, you can just wait and look at the revenue on the P&L, but you and I know that there's a whole subscription process that goes into that, and there's bookings, and there's customers, and there's expansions and churn, and all the things that happen. And if you're willing to really dive in upstream, then you become a finance team that's not reporting the news, you're making the news. And that's actually a big one for me. And every single person I hire in the finance organization, I want them to have that curiosity because they want to make the news with the business. And I always say this, I say, it's not finances numbers, it's our numbers. It's not the sales plan, it's our plan. And I think that's important because all of a sudden people say like, I have an invested interest in making sure that we're all successful. And so I'm going to set you up for success. And then I'm going to be there right by your side where I roll my sleeves up and help you get there. And I'm going to hold you accountable to then delivering on what you said you would do as well. Sounds like you're speaking to ownership. Yeah. I mean, I, so it's interesting for me. Like I, I tell this story all the time, grew up with not a ton of money. And so money was always tight and it kind of instilled in me this pride of like, I feel this tremendous amount of ownership you know, for obviously my personal, my family, but also for my companies. I view the company's balance sheet and cash and everything like it's mine. And I tell people that I'm like, and I'm not going to take credit for this. Our chief revenue officer at G2, who started right around when I did, his name is Eric Gilpin. He's incredible. He has this phrase, he goes, 
if you always act like an owner, you will be one. And if you act like it's my company, it always will be. And so it's like a difference, right? Act like it's your company, it always will be. Act like it's my company, it always will be. And so that's just a change in mindset in terms of how you think about stuff. Like if it was your money, would you still do that? And a lot of times the answer is yes, and we should keep doing it. But sometimes people say, well, no, I mean, if it's my money, I probably wouldn't buy that more expensive this or you know plan something differently and so it just it's a change it's a, it's a frame of reference and then i think in addition to just ownership of the company i always say like you know finance's job is to push the business but we have to build a strong foundation in finance and take ownership for what we do to then be able to push the business and so you know i feel there's some tremendous amount of ownership in the numbers and our performance you know at the end of the day as a cfo you're the one sitting in front of the board walking through the numbers and for the most part, hopefully you're always talking about good numbers. Sometimes you won't be. And then you're talking about, you know, what are you going to do to make things better? And it's not, what is everybody else going to do? It's what are we collectively going to do to make it better? We had spoken to Dan Zhang, CFO of ClickUp the other day. And she said that I think to be a really good finance business partner, you need to have felt the pain that the other people are going through in the other departments. And that stuck with me like pain, like, oh, you are emotionally invested in this too. You're not just like saying that's your commission, go get it. Or like, this is when we have to bring revenue live from the product roadmap. You're feeling it alongside them. She said, you're not delegating it out to them. You're, you're feeling ownership with them. You're right there, side, shoulder to shoulder, right? Doing it with them. Like a year end close, you're right there with the sales team, bringing in the deals. You know, you're right there with your product leader helping to build the roadmap and, and giving them the resources they need to build the roadmap to support the revenue plan. You know, you're ensuring that you're investing in post-sales support and services to make your customers successful. And you're also investing in finance to make sure all those processes run seamlessly. And I think, you know, I had a call right before this. Obviously, like every company, we're finalizing our budget for next year. And, you know, one of the big changes that we've made is deep dive and making sure that we're giving all of our business leaders, more visibility into how we're spending money in their department, vendor level, employee level, just really detailed. And what's amazing is when you do that, what my team has found is this incredible partnership being built with our executive leadership team because they love it. They feel empowered because we've now provided them the information to do their job and then run their function more effectively. And I view that as finance's responsibility. Like we, we need to empower the business to be successful. I had this running joke, one of my first CFO jobs, I got, and I won't name the company, but I got to the company and everybody was like asking me every, could I hire this person? Can yeah. I take this trip? Can I buy this software? And I was like, why are you all coming to me with every literal question of, in the company? And they said, well, we don't have department budgets or we don't oh, have wow. visibility to how we, and so you're like, well, that's the first thing we got to fix because I want you to have that because I don't want you to come to me and ask for permission all the time. You're an executive. You deserve to have the autonomy to drive your function how you see fit. And so part of finance's responsibility is to create that environment where they have that information at their fingertips to be able to make those decisions faster. It sounds like you upgraded everybody to adult level. You said you're an adult. Here's your budget envelope. Like feel some autonomy over it. You know, and I, what I've found in my career is if you do that, in the good times, things run really seamlessly. And even in the times where it's tougher and you need them to cut back or make decisions, because you've given them that responsibility and that autonomy, they're very bought in to managing the numbers with you. Just like you know, we talk about finance feeling like a partner, they feel like a partner in managing the financials. 
Right. And you brought them under the tent. Right. And I think the piece that people sometimes struggle with and finance teams, right? The foundation we have to build is how do we give them that information to feel like they're part of that process? Because if you don't, they won't feel it, right? Yeah. I'm uh, at a much earlier stage company than you are, but I kind of liken it back to crawl, walk, run, especially if you have executives who have never had a budget before. You don't want to like club them over the head with like employee level details. It's like, how can I just get this plane off the ground? But I do feel like you can spot pretty quickly the executives who are going to lean in with you and are asking for more. And I find it good to give it to them because it's like they're kind of coming over to my side of the table to work with me. Right. And then when there's a problem to solve, they want to solve it with you versus saying like, go figure this out. You're spot on. Ownership and accountability, they're actually very empowering traits that you can instill in any function in the company. You had a good soundbite about making the news. What does making the news look like? I learned this one prior to being in software. I spent eight years at the Home Depot. And I was really lucky to work under Carol Tomei, who's an incredible CFO. She's now the CEO of UPS. Ted Decker, who's now the CEO of Home Depot, just these incredible finance leaders. And what they taught me was, is like finance's job is to look around corners and to see things coming before everybody else does. And that puts you in a position to be able to drive the business to change the trajectory of where it's going. And what I mean by that is, is like, if you see revenue falling off and you may, maybe you need to manage costs tighter, it's finance's responsibility to proactively get into the business and drive that before it becomes an issue. Versus waiting until you see the numbers come out and then you report them and everybody's like, oh gosh, we got a problem. We got to figure it out. And I think that's the biggest difference between that being very proactive versus reactive. And you know, I'd say this is one of those things that's now been has gotten tons of traction in the last call of two years with the interest rate changes and the fundraising environment changes where everybody's like, oh, finance is irresponsible to drive the business. But like, I've thought about that way for a number of years. And it's kind of back to the same thing, which is one of the reasons I love working in finance and being a CFO is you get visibility to everything. You're at the hub. And so that's interesting and exciting, but it also is a responsibility because you're at that hub and you see everything to then help everybody else understand what's going on across the business. I think, and my sense from you just from talking is like, you probably believe this too, the best finance leaders not only build the processes and drive accountability, they can also then convey the numbers in a way where everybody can understand what's going on. Right. And they can actually make decisions based on that. I've been doing these finance and SaaS 101 conversations with like the product and engineering team. And I'm mad at myself that I didn't do it for the first year I was here because I do feel like it's like teaching a man to fish. They're way more interested in having a conversation with me. And in return, I get information about what their department's up to. Yeah. Yeah. Look, I think it's the the thing. And I, I was, this is my running joke when I was coming into G2. One of the other things I like about finance and it kind of hits on what you said is you don't need invitations to any party in the company. You can just show up. Yeah. <laughs> and, and that's back to that insatiable intellectual curiosity. Like if you, if you feel like there's a problem, you may go sit down with an area and just be like, hey, tell me what's going on. Like, let's just dig in and what's going on with Churn here? Or what's, what's going on with our product roadmap here? And the best finance leaders don't wait to be invited. They just go do it. And that's why I love what we get to do so much. And then, you know, you were saying how you're at an earlier stage business, but you get this as well. Somebody asked me once, like, why, 
I said I'd worked at Home Depot. I, I worked for Ariba and SAP. So I've worked at some really yeah. big companies too. And they asked me, what, what do you like so much about now being in a sales loft, a G2? And what I said was, is I love it because I feel like I can look back on a week or on a month and I can actually see the impact of what we're doing. Like it's tangible. And when you're in a bigger company, and that's not anybody's fault, but you just don't see that as much. Like it takes longer to make changes. You know, there's a lot more approvals. And I just found that to be really empowering for me and for my teams that they're like, wow, you know, I can I can make this change in a couple of weeks. And all of a sudden, like it unlocks this massive thing for a business. This might be a weird question to ask, but I felt like becoming a CFO for the first time, it was a longer feedback cycle to know if I made the right decision or not. Does that feedback cycle get longer the bigger the company is? Does it take longer to validate like what you did made an impact? It can. I think it depends on what you're changing, right? I think you're probably right that in general, there's two things. One is when you want to make a change, the bigger the company, the harder it is to make the change. And then, you know, yes, it takes probably more time to see if you made the right decision. There's always a framework people go through. There's like a, is this a decision where I'm basically betting the company? And those are the big decisions that you're really going to have a lot of data and a lot of, and you're going to be monitoring it really closely where you can course correct. Then there are things that, you know, like, look, this is not a bet the company decision. We're going to make this change, but we're going to monitor. And if we need to change it back or go a different direction, we can. And I think the biggest thing is the balance of knowing when you're making those decisions so you can move really fast. Speed is really important. And you know, the decisions where you just can't rush and you got to actually be intentional at how you you think through it. And so I think in big companies, you're right. And I think the other thing though, is the bigger the company, the more important it becomes to get alignment around decisions. So generally speaking, a lot of the things that you do impact other departments. Right. And I think you and your team have to be intentional at getting and partnering with people and bringing them under the tent on whatever you're trying to fix and say, here's the context of what we're trying to do. I would love your partnership in fixing it. Here are our ideas, but like, help us think through this together. And then if they feel like they're a part of the process, they're much more bought in at the end result. I never thought about it that way, that finance is like the only group that every decision we make impacts another group. Pretty much. Have you ever had to sit back and make one of those bet the company type decisions? Sure. I mean, you know, one example I would give you, and I've got a few, and, and luckily none of them have turned out in a bad way, but you know, we made a decision at sales loft. I joined in 2018 and then in 2019 where, you know, we were in a a really competitive emerging category in sales engagement. People know sales loft, they know outreach, you know, there are other competitors there as well. And at the time we made the decision to do a couple of bolt-on acquisitions and really transform sales engagement into a platform where you can not only engage via email and text and all those things. But, you know, we had conversation intelligence and then we had forecasting. And so that was a big decision to say, like, are we ready to kind of expand the aperture of the company into this broader view of the world? Because we think this is where the category is going. And if you actually look at now five years later, that is exactly where sales engagement has gone. Outreach has done it. Gong has done it. Clary, who acquired Groove, has done it. And so that was a decision that we made before anybody else did. And the bet the company decision was more about like, look, if you choose to go that wide and do that, you, you've got to be very intentional at what you do and don't do. Because you can't be the best in every single piece. you got to be the best platform as an integrated right. experience. And so that was a big decision that we made that ultimately paid off for us because 
you know, it expanded our total addressable market from being a top of the funnel solution to really being a full account executive solution. And if you look at now, most people are selling into full cycle sales executives now versus primarily top of the funnel. That was a big resource allocation bet. Yeah, that's right. Both on an inorganic basis. So we had to go find a partner to acquire and invest capital and do that and get our board on board. But then we also had to develop a roadmap where we could actually, you're right, allocate the right amount of resources across the different services of the platform and reserve some capacity because you're going to learn stuff along the way. And so it was a big one for us, but it, you know, it definitely paid off. That's a good example and a winning example. So I like it. Chad, you'd mentioned some great CFOs you've worked for and with in the past. If you step back and think about it, what qualities do you think separate the good CFOs from the great ones? And I referenced Carol. I think one of the things I saw from her was it was always business first. And what I mean by that is, is like, yep, it shows up in numbers and metrics, but like, let's talk about what's going on in the business. We'll get to the metrics. And that was really eye-opening for me because I was, I was young in my career to see that she led with digging into a process, digging into a, a business problem first, and then we will dig into the financials at, at some point. And so I, mm. I think that's really important. I think the best CFOs are, they're very collaborative. You have to have the ability to build cross-functional partnerships because at the end of the day, you need the team aligned with you and where you want to go. And you're not always going to give them the answers that they want. It's like the running joke, and you probably get this too. If I give you a budget you're happy with, I probably gave you too much money, right? <laughs> yeah. But on the flip side, you know, you want to set them up for success. And you know, that, that comment about lines, not dots, it also applies to your internal relationships in the company too. So I want to invest in relationships with our executive leadership team before we ever need to do something together. Like, because when times get tough, that's when you stretch those relationships the hardest. And if you've invested in the good times, it really does set you up for success as a team. I know I'm now going to quote some of the cheesy phrases, but you do win as a team ultimately. I heard this stat that most CFOs leave their job not because of conflicts with their CEO, but due to conflicts with their peers in the C-suite. Yeah, I think that's a fair point. And even as a CFO, and I think it varies obviously by industry, there are certain functions where your partnership and your relationship are like mission critical to your success and the success of the company. You know, one of the examples I always give is the CFO-CRO, Chief Revenue Officer Partnership, is paramount. And I've been really lucky in my career. I mentioned Eric Gilpin before, but Steve Goldberg, Sean Murray, I've worked with incredible CROs. And look, we probably agree on stuff 95% of the time, but we invest in these relationships. So when we disagree on the 5%, we can actually work through it together and figure out a path forward. But if you don't have that kind of relationship, it's always that last step where you, you got to get something done. And if you don't have that kind of partnership, you're just not successful. The CFO CRO one is a fascinating one because you're essentially always giving them a target that is walking the line between ambitious and like, just, you don't want to demoralize people either. What what do you think goes into a good relationship between a CFO and a CRO? Because I've had people say like, oh, you guys are frenemies. And I didn't like that term. I was like, I don't want to be frenemies with this guy. Like we're partners building something. What's a good relationship there? I mean, I think a lot of it is like, you have that open dialogue about what's important because you, you know, you think about it, one is building a plan and you know, you, you build a plan tops down and bottoms up and you, you triangulate it multiple ways. 
and then you give the context. So I think one of the, I have this coffee cup here in my office that, that says, what's the context with your CRO, but any business leader, it's like, what's the context of what we're trying to achieve? Is it, are we accelerating growth? Are we being conservative? Do we need to make massive improvements in our unit economics? Like things like that and bringing them along in the journey. And you kind of lay that foundation early so that when you're in the process of building the targets, you're doing it together. And yes, like there should be a little bit of tension, but I don't view that as a friend of me. I think it's healthy tension. And the best leaders can understand where the other side's coming from. And you ultimately, you're meeting in the middle of a lot of things like comp plans, you know, compensation plans for your revenue organization is a prime example of where there's a, a partnership that goes in and, and the best partnerships are between revenue and operations and finance to build plans that both achieve motivation and drive people to want to drive the right outcomes for the company and are economically viable for the business in the long run. That's very hard to do. It is. And you need both sides represented. You can't just have a plan that's economically great for the company because then it may not motivate people enough. But you can't have a plan that all it does is motivate people because then it probably won't be, make the company very profitable. And so I think that that CRO-CFO partnership helps to mold that together. And also, too, it's like you're driving together, ultimately, the revenue success of the company. Yeah, I love how you broke that down. That was a good one. Chad, I'm going to take you into what we call our long-ass lightning round. So the first question I ask people is, what's an example of something you've screwed up on the job? It could be here or a previous role in your career. I'll go back to Home Depot. I remember I was working on a project. We were doing some restructuring, and I had made a mistake on the project, and I, I didn't handle the resolution very well. We ultimately got to a good outcome, but the way I went about it, I just I didn't communicate well and... I kind of tried to do things my own way without actually asking for help when I really needed it. And I remember I, I frustrated some pretty senior level executives that I worked with. And, uh, you know, you fly close to the sun. So sometimes that happens. And I remember my boss sat me down and he was like, you know, Chad, you made a mistake. It happens. He goes, you've been so focused on like showing that you know how to do everything, that you're ready for that next step, that big jump in your career that you're missing all these little stair-step opportunities to like learn and grow and ask for help along the way so that you can do things. And it it stuck with me now. That conversation was 14 years ago. And I still have that picture in my mind that he drew on his board where he showed the arc from the one step at the bottom to the step at the top and then the stair steps in between. And I've had that conversation with so many people in my career and across their careers too. I've said like, look, don't focus on the big stuff. Focus on getting incrementally better because it'll make you ready for the big step when it comes. And I, I had made mistakes early in my career where I, I lost sight of that bigger picture. And, it, and I think, again, I always have to remind myself of that now. And, and I have stolen that chart, that visual many times with my, my team across their careers too. But I think the other one I'd say, which is probably just more of a, a rookie finance leader mistake, was we were building a budget. This is probably I don't know, 10 years ago. And we just asked the business what they wanted. And uh, we rolled it all up. And obviously, the numbers didn't look very good, right? It just because it, it didn't have a cohesive yeah. strategy. I joked around. It's like if you ask somebody what they want, they tell you they want unicorns and ponies. I was literally about to make the joke. You ended up with a hundred ponies. Yeah. Unicorns and ponies. I had lots of unicorns and ponies. And so I made the mistake of not setting the strategy with the leadership team ahead of time and saying, Hey, you're all going to get targets, but here's the context. Here's what we're trying to achieve as a business. And here's how your target fits into that. And again, back to bringing people under the 10, 
it's your responsibility as the CFO or finance leader to set that out in the beginning. Here's what we want to achieve. I I, I told our leadership team at G2 because I'm only two months into my, my role and we had to build the budget right after I got here. And so what I said is, is like, think of the budget like this big Rubik's cube. We're trying to solve for growth rates and profitability and different metrics. And you kind of, you're constantly turning the Rubik's cube and you do that because things pop out. Like there's always constraints in the business that you find. And so it's your responsibility to lay that context out for the leadership team. And I know the question was about a mistake, but like I learned early in my career that you have to do that or else you do end up with, uh, like you said, a hundred ponies. (laughs) You're running a stable. (laughs) Yeah. Roll the theme music, producer Nancy. And with that, it's time to rep Yo Stack, sponsored by Tropic, the next-gen procurement platform helping modern CFOs take control of their budgets and bottom line. By combining approval workflows, supplier management, and pricing benchmarks all in one place, Tropic makes savings opportunities easy to find and act on. Visit tropicapp.io to learn how. All right, next one here. Can you walk me through your finance software stack? What are the tools that you're using to get the job done today? Sure. You know, some of the big ones, you know, at G2, we run Intact as our ERP. I've used both Intact and NetSuite, and both are very strong in terms, especially for recurring revenue companies. This is now the second time in my career we use Adaptive Insights for planning. And I think there are a number of good solutions out there. We had used Adaptive when I got the sales locked and we built on that. And so when I got the G2, they just happened to have it. And so we were lucky that we'd used it before. But there's some great tools out there like Pigment and you know, there's Anaplan. And then also it's stage specific. I think there's great tools like Cube that are out there that are actually really easy to implement and yeah. run with. And I think it's important to know what's good for your business at the time versus like buying something that's too heavy too early. We use Tesorio for collections which we've been really pleased with. I've used that. I've used YayPay. Those are great tools. And I think back to cash is king at the end of the day, you got to have that process really, really tight. And so I, that's a big one to invest in. Today, we use Nabon for travel and expense. I've used that. I've used Expensify. I've used Concur. I think what I like about Trip Actions or now Nabon is, one is the integration across travel and expense, but two is you know, one of the things I heard about, you probably heard this a lot, is like when you put in a travel system, A lot of times you'll hear executives say, or people say, well, gosh, I could go buy the ticket online and it's cheaper than whatever your travel system is pulling up. I think one of the Navon selling points is they're using all that inventory in addition to like, they're pulling all the the business rates, but also all the rates online. So you really can get the best possible. I'm always getting that complaint. Yeah. All the time. And and I would say Navon is the main solution I personally have seen that tries to really solve for that. Last question I got for you. Yeah. What's the craziest thing you've ever seen someone try to expense? Uh, that's a good one. I saw somebody try to put through like a $3,000 coffee maker. Oh, okay. I mean, again, no malintent. They just thought they were doing the right thing. Again, it wasn't for their own house. It was for- Oh, I was going to say, that's like industrial Starbucks grade. Yeah. But I mean, even for an office, like a $3,000 yeah. coffee maker. I'd say that's probably for me personally, the, the most egregious thing I've seen. I mean, obviously I've seen some pretty big meal tabs- from time yeah. to time, but that's that's fairly kind of horse and speed, but that coffee maker still sticks in my mind today. That's good. Chad, this has been a pleasure. Thanks for teaching me a lot and thanks for being generous with your time and, and coming to talk to us today. Well, CJ, I want to say thank you for having me on and uh, thank you for what you do. I think podcasts like this are awesome for finance leaders. 
Thank you. And I'm just, I'm very honored and grateful that you have had me on. Thank you. Big, big fan of what you're doing at G2. Thanks, Chad. Thank you. Roll the credits, producer Natalie. Run the Numbers is part of the Turpentine Podcast Network. It is produced by Natalie Torin and edited by Justin Golden. Album artwork by Some AI Thing. Yelling an intro by Fat Joe. If you made it this far, please give us five stars. I really need this. <laughs>